Welcome to the Not Your Normal Social Emotional Learning Podcast. I am Nini White, and in this episode, our very special guest educator is Lonnie Mednick, who grew up in a family of well-respected educators in Seattle, Washington. She has taught and tutored all grades TK through 6th, mostly at low-income schools in Denver, San Jose, California, and Oakland, California. Three years ago, Lonnie was recruited to be a coach and mentor to teachers in the early literacy program in the Unified in the Oakland Unified School District. Her responsibilities have since expanded to include coaching other teacher coaches to create foundational learning for all of the youngest students in her district. In this episode, Lonnie shares many insights from her many layers of experience and honest self-examination as an educator, including Lonnie's perspective on the value of facilitation, as well as her description about her own reservations about letting go of total control in her classroom by introducing open-ended questions to her young students. Thank you for joining us on the Not Your Normal Social Emotional Learning Podcast. I love talking to you. You know that. You are one of the most dedicated teachers I've ever come across, and I've come across a lot of dedicated teachers. But what I love is when I see your students, how much they love and are devoted to you and appreciate having you in their lives. So for me, that's the the real test and the real uh, validation. Um, so I want to hear a little bit about you as your evolution as an educator and uh, how you got to where you are today. And then I really want to hear about your current responsibilities. So Okay. Good. <clears throat> so um, thanks for having me. Oh, yeah. I'm really excited to be talking to you. I am definitely really passionate about it. And I'm glad that you have seen the, the kids be reciprocally excited about <laughs> my love for them. Um, But yes, I was raised by educators and knew that that's what I needed to do. Um, In college, I was working in in Southern California at USC. Um, I was going to school and the surrounding areas were um, not like my school. They had a lot less privilege. So I spent a lot of time in those spaces and really learning about myself and, and helping to bring light into places that didn't have as much light. Mm. Um, So then I started teaching full-time and taught full-time for eight years and um, in a variety of places, sixth grade, third grade, kindergarten, transitional kindergarten, and found that I really wanted to work with the youngest students because I wanted to support in building the foundation of their educational trajectory Mm. and found so much value in, um, being the the first place that they really are seeing um, what the world of education is about mm. and supporting their, their learning development. And then um, three years ago, I was presented with the opportunity to coach teachers and support them in creating a vision for their spaces and for their students. And um, now I'm a lead early literacy coach for Oakland Unified School District, where I'm coaching the coaches to coach the teachers um, to create that uh, foundation of learning. Oh, incredible. And what is the best part of those responsibilities that you have now? I really, really love my job and so many different elements, but my favorite uh, piece of it is working in professional development with teachers and really valuing them as professionals 
and seeing them have a light bulb moments um, and seeing them feel really supported in their thinking about their classroom spaces and their individual students. Um, and I never really had that sort of professional development and mentorship um, as much. Mm -hmm. And so I like being the person that I wish that I had oh. uh, someone to just bounce ideas off of and like think strategically about what would be in most service of both myself in my classroom and uh, my students. Of course. I mean, it's, do you think that this kind of a program is going to uh, expand to other areas, other cities, other school districts? Yeah. I do hope so. Right now it's a grant funded project. So the past three years um, we've been working under that because as you know, budgets yeah. are tight in education. Um, but we are uh, coming into Oakland Unified as a system. My co-director and I are now invited to many of the meetings where decisions are being made and we're um, really advocating for mentorship and support for teachers to feel um, respected and to feel like they um, have a team behind them. Wow. So important. So valuable. And, you know, in all of this, uh, what is the most challenging part of what you're doing now currently? I think the most challenging, there's like <clears throat> two tiers of pieces that are challenging. One is because it's grant funded. There's, it's, we have to prove ourselves through data very often mm -hmm. um, and things don't turn around immediately. Um, and there, we see such an impact of our work every day in the classrooms and that's not immediately expressed uh, via data. Right, right. So sometimes it's hard to show the impact of our hard work and that feels a little disheartening. Right. Um, so like it's a challenge to work within like a greater um, many times bureaucratic system where there are so many priorities and um, teachers are feeling really overwhelmed and there's a lot thrown at them all the time. So I'm trying to navigate how to be a supportive piece and not being um, any sort of add on into their lives that feels uncomfortable. Oh, very yeah. good. Are there parts of teachers' practice that you know you could help them with, but some teachers just, just for some reason can't help themselves and they keep resisting changing their most ingrained yes. practices? Yes, oh. there's a lot of, of pushback that we encounter. Oh. Um, and it's, a, it's usually initially for everyone. Like people get into a groove. The only teachers that... Uh, are not really resistant at the beginning are brand new teachers mm -hmm. <laughs> because they're just eager to understand like what's the best way to do this um, <clears throat> even though they have challenges at first they are eager to learn and many teachers are eager to learn there's just resistance to anything that's new or outside of what they're comfortable with because there's so much that they have on their plates they don't want to like take anything on and try anything else because um, many are exhausted in oh, some yeah. cases. So, How um, do you overcome that resistance in them? Like at trying it out with them, showing them that it works, <laughs> really um, a lot of modeling and shoulder uh, teaching, um, having them see demo lessons in video, really talking them through it and spending the time to help them understand that um, it's something that they really can do 
and that they and their students. Can you share with us any wins in, in those areas of people overcoming? Yeah, there was a lot of resistance from a teacher at my school, um, a, a first grade teacher. Mm-hmm. She like had a way that she was doing it for a long time, um, like 10, 15 years. <clears throat> and, wow. and I came in as her coach. I was her coach for the past three years. And like everything that I would say, hey, why don't you try this? It's, well, the first answer is always no. <laughs> yeah, right. and, and then she would think about it a little bit more watch me do it put it into practice and then started really seeing the results of her students in her classroom and now like she is calling me and asking me like what should I do what should I do what should I do Mm -hmm. like for the past year and now she is like totally flipped her mindset and wants to become a coach or she wanted to become a coach so now she's joining my early literacy cohort as a coach for this work And so I'll be able to continue coaching her as a coach and she can really support the resistant teachers because she was one of them and can talk about her experience and why, um, why she changed her methodology a bit. Beautiful. Was there, was there one particular practice you can highlight in her work that she resisted and then shifted? Yeah, I think she, one thing that she was doing a lot is she was doing um, like just whole group, everything, mm-hmm. <laughs> like always like, here's the lesson, here's the, or like, here's the mini lesson, here's the guided practice. And now you guys do it like the traditional, I do, we do, you do kind of format, but for okay. her entire class. Mm-hmm. And I really helped her understand the importance of like, differentiating based on the students needs and pulling small groups and um, understanding what the students themselves their interests are and crafting the lessons and the spaces around what they genuinely like so it's not like here's this objective that I need to teach it's more like okay we're going to have like this thematic understanding for rich learning you're still going to be learning how to read and write and calculate mathematics etc we're going to do it in a way that's authentically interesting to the students in her class. Multicultural projects that reflected the students in the class and um, like phonics lessons that were designed to meet the students' individual needs, not everybody getting the same thing. So did that, I can see how that could maybe add more work to her load, but I could also see how it saved her work in the, in the big picture so what what happened there? What's the truth of that? Yeah, I think what she noticed is that when she was doing whole group, like half of the class or maybe even less would be engaged and following along. And then she would have to reteach the lessons to the other half yeah. one way or another, or they wouldn't learn the important content or they wouldn't or they would become less engaged and they would just tune out or cause behavioral mm-hmm. conflict. Mm-hmm. And so when she was really created like stations and systems where the students were um, independently engaged with tasks at their um, at their interest and at their like um, capacity in that moment for that subject then she saw that she was able to really work with students and move them along a continuum of learning oh that's so beautiful I mean we're talking win-win here she's yeah she's more successful the kids are more successful. I mean, that's what they're there for, right? That's what everybody's there for. Yep. That's beautiful. Exactly. 
Um, So one of the educational approaches I'm always encouraging educators to explore on this podcast is facilitation as compared to teaching, not to replace teaching, but as a complement to teaching. So I'm wondering, Lonnie, how would you describe facilitation as compared to teaching from the teacher's perspective and then also from the student's perspective? Mm -hmm. So in my mind, facilitation is like creating the space and the opportunity to come to your own knowledge and conclusions. Mm -hmm. And it's more of like asking the right questions, um, not directive questions, but asking questions to provoke deep thinking mm-hmm. and helping students to connect the dots in the bigger picture um, and make connections to their own lives mm-hmm. so that it's directly relevant. Um, and in the teacher perspective, it's a little nerve wracking at first because <laughs> like I have these standards, I need to get to all these things. There's these standardized tests and all, all sorts of things. And I don't want to lose control of my classroom. And, uh, but you find that the, you walk away so much more fulfilled when your students are getting to these like nuggets of knowledge that, um, they they have and that you want them to continue to be thinking like that they're not always going to have a teacher being like here is the thing that you need to know in in life they're going to be ha- they're going to have to navigate the complexities of the world on their own and so facilitation gives them the the vehicle to get there um, or at least like in the brain to support that thinking with the what to support that thinking the like trains their brain with the, uh, the the vehicle to support that thinking or like oh. the methodology, I think is what I said. Right, right. Yeah. Um, but, and then for the student, the student feels a lot more respected. Like it's a lot less top down and hierarchical in, in the whole culture of the classroom. They feel valued. They feel like their opinions matter. Um, and they feel more engaged. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So I know in my own experiences training teachers, uh, I have come up against quite a lot of resistance, not about the theory of it, but actually adopting it, just, you know, that resistance to change, um, especially with teachers of the youngest students. And you you have told me that you had some resistance to facilitating with your TK kids. And then um, what were your biggest concerns and what were your biggest wins once you did take that leap to, to try it and see what the kids were going to come up with that you hadn't specifically directed them to come up with? Yeah, <laughs> um, I definitely had resistance. I, I <laughs> was most scared of losing control mm-hmm. of the classroom, to be honest. Uh, I had over 20 students that had a variety of really high needs. Mm-hmm. And I was concerned that they, without like a more scripted or directed structure in the classroom, they would just face. Yeah. Um, so that was a concern for me. And then when I started trying, I realized that they were a lot more with me and they were excited about it. Like they didn't want somebody to tell them what to do. Mm. They wanted someone to ask them questions and to listen to them. Mm. Little kids, they really want to be heard. Like all of us have had that little kid just tapping at us insistently, (laughs) wanting 
speak. And there's a lot of distracted adults or busy adults. We have a lot going on. And so we see that all the time, like a, a mom on the phone, not like wanting to engage with the child at the moment because they're busy in something else. And I felt like sometimes when I was just uh, teaching, like explicitly teaching, yep. I had students who were like, you seem like you're too busy for what I really need to learn right now um, because I was like holding the court and directing the show uh, and I liked creating the space for them to feel heard and to listen, yeah. like really intentionally and actively listen to their ideas. And we, we got to similar places and sometimes many times more deep places when we would talk about like, one conversation I remember that was really powerful was when it was like MLK day the day after, and we were talking about um, equality and human rights. And like, I could have just read a book about MLK and then like gone through some teaching points and had them repeat some key learnings. But instead I had a conversation about what equality was to them and how they would feel if they were treated differently than their classmates and um, brought up like uh, there was a time where only certain students could use a certain water fountain. What do you think about that? Is that fair? Why do you think that happened? Right. Things like that. Right, right. And the conversation was so much more rich, even with five-year-olds. Then if I was just like, this is this person and next day moving on, we're not talking about that anymore because <laughs> then we like equality was a thread in the classroom that we would talk about and it lend itself to an, a concept of like, what, what is sharing, you know, or in mm -hmm. kindergarten, so, like equality and sharing and the difference between equality and equity, because I would spend more time with some students than others based on needs. Um, mm -hmm. So it, was a, it became really rich when we were having these open-ended discussions and, and thinking together. I mean, I love hearing you talk about this. And it just makes me come up with so many questions. Like, I want to hear, I want to ask you two other questions. One is that how, what happened inside of you to say, okay, I'm going to try this thing that I think I might not have control so what what was that mental shift in you where you just went from here to there I, I want I know you'd made the shift but was there some <laughs> mental pro and then the other thing is um you, you've made it very clear that five-year-olds can have these kinds of conversations they can do some uh you know internal uh analysis of 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 activities that they observe and feelings that they have and other people's feelings and empathy. And, and we don't have to teach those things, but we do need to draw them out. So I'd also like you to talk on that. I know those are two different things, but can you do that for us? <laughs> yep. Good. So I think the biggest shift for me, well, it was a, a series of events. Like when I first started teaching, I was handed the textbooks and told like, okay, this is how you teach mm -hmm. <laughs> basically. And it didn't feel natural, but I didn't necessarily know another way. I got my master's degree in curriculum and instruction and it was very basic. Mm -hmm. They didn't go into this concept of facilitation. It was mostly like, here are the state standards. And now it's like, here are the common core state standards. These are what needs to be taught. Mm -hmm. um, and there are a variety of ways to get to the standards but 
in my beginning years and not having mentorship, um, I was kind of just going with it. And I would have good conversations like on the side or the classroom would move towards that conversation. But um, I tried to just like stick to the curriculum that I was given. And then um, when I was down in San Jose, we started a social emotional learning curriculum. Mm And I started really, that's was my, started to be my favorite time of the day (laughs) because I was addressing the human side of being an educator and directly. And uh, I found that what was working best for my students is just asking them about their experiences and connection to the lessons (laughs) and meeting you helped me in that journey also. And really thinking about kids own wisdom and, and drawing out the knowledge that is within each child and yeah that then I just like started thinking about how much more relevant the the teaching space can be and why it's it's so extremely old-fashioned that so many classrooms look the same way as they have for a hundred years more than that like so many of our fields have changed so much like technology, transportation, like that's changed so dramatically in the past past hundred years, but classrooms look about the same. Right. And so I started to think about why that is and what I can do to change that mm-hmm. uh, to address like the modern day and human needs of the students in my classroom. Yeah. Your other question was around five-year-olds and um, having those conversations with them to draw out the wisdom within and to draw out the the knowledge they have, they, they, they have it. They're so wise. Exactly. And I think it's just um, what I have come to understand is it's just about um, asking questions and pointing out things in their environment that they have noticed and giving them names and asking them about what they think about these different things. Mm. Like I love spending time with my two and a half year old niece like she is so curious and and wide-eyed about everything and even at two and a half we can have some pretty deep conversations about the way things work and um like you take a leaf and you can have a whole (laughs) hour-long conversation with the two and a half year old about this leaf and the trees and the seeds and the cycle of life and how it changes colors and all of that Completely wonderful. And research validates all of that, what you're saying. I mean, you know, even infants that don't have words or language yet, they're, it's so clear that they're perceiving the difference between, you know, positive and negative uh, influences in their environment. I mean, and they, they're com- computing so much, you know, and to think that yeah. it doesn't start until they have you know, sophisticated language is such an underestimation. And when we don't underestimate children, what is that doing as their foundation for their entire lives? Oh, I know you and I share the passion. I mean, it's so important. Yeah. Um, and if they don't have the, the vocabulary, it's our role as those who have more of a vocabulary to give them that, that rich language. Like developing language is so important. Um, And what I mean by giving them the language is just speaking in that way, like not speaking in like a, a way that matches a two and a half year old in language, like giving them real examples of like, Oh, let's talk about metamorphosis. (laughs) Let's talk about 
photosynthesis. Let's like have conversations about evolution. Let's like go, yeah. let's go there. Let's, um, and then just modeling the language in my everyday life when I'm speaking to adults or speaking to them using the words and they'll understand it in context and start picking it up. Yes. They're sponges. Yes, yes, yes. Um, I have one more, well, maybe two more questions for you. Um, but when children have been exposed to, you know, excessive stress and trauma, and, and I know that you work with ki- those k- kids because you're working in those areas, how can these kinds of interactions that you're having with them uh, help to, you know, yeah. So as an early I mean, literacy can, coach, what I mean is, how can you? I'm sorry to interrupt you, but how can you yeah, no, okay. move past that so that they can take in something nourishing, so that they, besides the trauma, they can take. Yeah. In, yeah. Okay. Good. I mean, that's a really, really good question, and it's something that I think about very often. Yes. Um, as an early literacy coach, my primary job is making sure that students in Oakland are reading. And there's a lot of ways to get there and the, the literacy rates are really low. Um, so I have thought a lot about reading and trauma and how it's reciprocal and how um, helping students build the capacity, their own capacity helps them break out of that cycle of violence. Mm-hmm. So as they're able to start reading and like pull the words off of the page they have greater access to the world and they feel more confident and connected and capable um, in their classrooms Mm. um, and then uh, are more engaged and then they like continue being successful throughout their educational trajectory and move out of that cycle Um, and then I think about that in terms of the conversations I'm having with students so once they feel connected and capable and they're able to access the content tapping into their knowledge and helping them really understand that they matter Mm. is huge huge like I care what you think about you're you are like a totally important valued member of this society you are important yeah (laughs) and just like by just listening to them and hearing their thoughts yes it's um, that is what you're telling them and you could tell them those words explicitly like you matter you're important but just by being a facilitator of of thinking and by asking them questions Mm -hmm. that really are not like closed questions they're open-ended and and spark their own curiosity it tells them that they are important and valued members of the society right I think uh I think it's an important dimension yes the message you matter you're important but I just for myself when people tell me that personally I need to experience that I matter I don't I when people tell me it's just like well how do you know you haven't seen that I matter you know yeah yeah so like yeah being at Letting your actions speak that way. Yes, because then you see it for yourself, and then you. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Wonderful. Um. Oh, thank you, Lonnie. Um. Any last thoughts you'd like to share about you know the importance? You said that uh, social emotional learning is like one of your favorite parts of the day, and just any important thoughts you want to share about um that in for the early kids, early childhood development. Yeah. 
Yeah, I just think I come across so many adults that I wish had solid social emotional <laughs> learning pathways. Yeah. Um, and I just find that the most successful people that I know um, in my definition of success, which is like happy and have healthy connected relationships mm. and like are really living life to its fullest potential. Mm. All of those people are um, emotionally intelligent <laughs> and all of those people know how to manage conflict mm. and all of those people know how to show up for their friends and their community and I feel like um, we as educators um, need to support that development of our students. And it's not just about the content um, of the Common Core standards, or it's not just if a student can read, because we don't want students who can just read. We want students that can read and interact with the world in a positive and meaningful way. Right. Um, so it feels really, really deeply important to me to develop like the entire child and um, help them come become more in touch with who they are as people. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. Thank you, Lonnie. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for reaching out and asking these great questions. Oh, thank you for all you're, you're doing. You're making me feel game. important. <laughs> Say it again. You're making me feel important. Oh my gosh, you, <laughs> know, I, you know I honor and love you so much. Um, thank you, we'll be in touch, okay? Okay, bye. Okay, bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed listening to that interview with Lonnie as much as I I love talking to her. If you have any questions about this episode or ways in which you'd like to add to the ideas we discussed, please email me at nini-white at kidsownwisdom.com. My name is N-I-N-I-W-H-I-T-E, and the website is kidsownwisdom.com. This podcast is dedicated to teachers who are dedicated to their young students, and we really mean it. If you have ideas, thoughts, suggestions, questions, anything, we'd love to hear from you. And of course, we'd love you to rate this podcast so that we can continue gaining visibility for more of the teachers we seek to serve. Okay, thanks. Until next time.